Keith, what day of the week is it? <laughs> philosophy Friday! Philosophy Friday! <laughs> Today on the University Podcast, it is philosophy, philosophy Friday. We're back, and we're back in A Shot of Faith to the Head by Dr. Mitch Stokes. And Keith, I think we are passing the center of the book right now. So... I'm, I'm reading I, off I don't my know where phone the computer. Of the so. is, but. <laughs> yeah, it's I think he definitely did it in a chiastic structure. So we're definitely uh, around the uh, M mark, I believe. So. Yeah. So we're actually starting part two of the book. Uh, in episode five, we covered the intermission, and part two, the the kind of title of this whole section is "Science Has Shown There's No God." And uh, if you remember the kind of flow of argument of the book, um, he's now going into kind of two main objections that you're just going to, I think, probably get on the street or on college campuses that people tend to have. And today we're going to talk a lot about the relationships of science, religion, faith, atheism, and stuff like that. So, Keith, you have a new jargon word for us today, and what is that? Now, the jargon word is naturalism. And so the basic idea, well, there's going to be two words, naturalism being the first one. And naturalism is a philosophical outlook and a metaphysical outlook that is dedicated to the idea that the universe that we can uh, that we were able to see, taste, touch, and feel is all that there is, and that there is nothing that transcends the physical universe that we are, you know, uh, are aware of through our empirical senses. And so that's kind of uh, more the bigger philosophical term. But then the discussion we want to have today dealing with science is a idea called methodological naturalism. And so methodological naturalism uh, does not necessarily entail the idea of philosophical naturalism. But methodological naturalism is committing ourselves to studying the world around us through your basic empirical methods and the uh, scientific method. And okay. so what you're able to uh, quantify, weigh, measure, that's the stuff we know. And so we don't have any appeals to a transcendent being for that. So if we're playing a football game and I was to you know, tackle you or commit a pass interference, I can't be like, a demon made me do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, uh, so, so our method in studying the football game is the natural methods of okay. what's going on on the field and the appeal to a divine being in that context. We just say, well, it's irrelevant to our game. Okay. Um, what we know of the game is you, you're touching him. That's the knowledge. So that's kind of the method of knowing a football game. And they want to branch that out into the rest of the world. Okay. And is that different or the same as materialism? What would be the difference there? Uh, yes, it is going to be... Uh, the, the, I'll, I'll say, for simplicity's sake, it's going to be a yes. Um, yes to it's the same, or yes it's... Uh, yes, it's the same. Yeah, okay. Yes, it, it's usually reduced, in our context, it's usually reduced to materialism. Okay. Um, you can have uh, other strands of uh, naturalism that would not entail straight-up materialism. Okay. Um, but, because even in materialist philosophies, uh, you have debates on how they account for something like the mind. You okay. know what I mean? And, and so they're still trying so to account for it. So it's a subset of naturalism because you could, you're could you arguing about what is in nature. Mm -hmm. And you so you could potentially say uh, a naturalist that's not a materialist could be someone who believes that ghosts yeah, there, could, could be a thing. Yeah, right? there's, there's, there's something that does not transcend a natural world. So like you have even in uh, philosophy, you have, idea, you have uh, even within that could be a form of idealism, uh, which is like, uh, just gets into more complex ideas. So it, it, for simplicity's sake, in our context, we'll say materialism, it's, it is a subset of naturalism, but that's going to be the most common form of naturalism that you're going to bump into okay. on a college campus and everywhere else. Very few people um, are going to be outside that context. If they're a naturalist, they're materialists in okay. our context. So yeah, I think this will become a little bit more clear as we get into this chapter. So chapter 11 is called Galileo and the Needless 
war. And uh, just before we started recording, we are talking about how, uh, yeah, some of the history of this is, uh, this was new to me. You know, I've heard of Galileo, obviously, and the Copernican revolution and, and all this stuff. Um, on, the, on the first page of this chapter, he talks about uh, this kind of bifurcation or dialectic, I don't know what the best word would be for this kind of science versus religion war. And he argues that this is actually a concocted war, not a real one. Keith, what, did, what were your kind of impressions of chapter 11 and this whole science versus religion thing? Yeah, and I think uh, tying into the idea of methodological naturalism, he quotes uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who is a, a famous Harvard uh, paleontologist. And even Stephen Jay Gould, who's a well-known atheist paleontologist and uh, one of the forerunners of evolutionary thought in the previous century, um, he makes this comment. He says, to say it uh, for my colleagues and for the upteenth millionth time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. We neither affirm nor deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. And so when you commit yourself to that method, mm -hmm. there could have been a demon that made you bump in that guy in the football game. It's just outside of our method of knowing. So our method of knowing is that which is empirical. So I appreciate Gould here because he, I think, is a little more honest that I'm committing myself to this method yeah. and this realm of knowledge is outside of it, where later on he starts to get into like uh, Hitchens and Dawkins and they want to immediately jump from a methodological naturalism to philosophical naturalism. And so that's kind of even, and even this book a little bit is building off of Alan Plantica's books and Plantica has a book called Where the Conflict Lies. And so the, the conflict does not lie um, uh, at, at the at the root of well the conflict lies at the root at the method methodological level more so than the metaphysical level because most scientists don't want to debate the metaphysical level they just want to assume their naturalism because it works and they even someone in one, one of these chapters uh, they're like oh we we don't need your god because science works and so they they kind of limit themselves to a methodological approach to the world yeah I want to actually read this Dawkins quote and discuss a little bit so he says just a, a couple paragraphs down he says why shouldn't we comment on God as scientists and and he actually calls Gold's assertion that you just read. Um, he says, this is a confident, almost bullying tone. You know, gold, gold is bullying us. What is his justification for it? Why shouldn't we comment on God as scientists? And I thought, it's kind of funny that they want, it, they want to be able to comment on God as scientists, but they want to keep the theologians from commenting on science. Yeah. And, and they say, stay in your lane, but we'll kind of swerve over into yours. Yeah, and it's kind of a kind of like a intellectual imperialism. Like, th this is the only way we can know. You keep in your closet. You can have your little fairy tale beliefs back here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're doing the we're doing the men's stuff over here, which is science. And so we can comment on this. And, and that's the thing. That's the leap, I think, even when you're having intellectual discussions. That's the leap that, like, if you're, uh, and even some of the early chapters lay at this, is since they're not accounting for all of their knowledge and their epistemology and some of their foundations through naturalistic means, mm -hmm. they just want to beg the question. So they just want to show up, like, and sometimes Christians want to do this too, but they just want to show up, assume our position's true, and anything that doesn't fit our method, it's kind of like if the facts don't fit, or if the facts don't fit our theory, let the facts be damned. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so they'll just damn any fact that comes along and, and they're going to squeeze it into their, their methodology. Yeah. And then uh, he uh, Stokes goes on to give an account for why they do this and or how we ended up in this kind of science versus religion dialectic that he says is really concocted, not a real tension. And he, and he points to these 
two books that uh, were written in the 1800s. One is called A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, 1896, and then A History of the Conflict Between Science and Religion, 1874. And it's funny that these kind of to, to me, at least, I've uh, never heard of these books, <laughs> yeah, me obscure, neither. but they're apparently qu quoted by this guy, Victor Stenger, uh, approvingly all over the place. And, and I, I thought it was keen where he said, Sec secularization was their goal in doing this. Science was their weapon. Secularization was the goal of this science versus religion dialectic, and science was their weapon. Uh, what do you think of that? Was I mean, It seems like it's been a very successful campaign yeah it's been it's been a yeah it's been a tremendous campaign and it's really this whole section is it was mildly frustrating for me because i realized this kind of how historically ignorant i am of everything that's going on and and i would have been one of these people if i talked about copernicus revolution and galileo i'd have been like oh the church suppressed these people yeah. and, you, and you start getting the details like ah no but i but i think that's i think that's something that I, as americans uh we are thoroughly influenced by the enlightenment um and probably something we've brushed on here, but like I, I think about it in the way I think I know the world in general, I still privilege scientific knowledge over religious knowledge. Now, obviously, as a Christian, I worship God, but it, you know, maybe not a perfect illustration, but thinking in our current context, our uh, disdain that Muslims would mask their women, but then we have no problem for secular reasons masking ourselves. You know what I mean? So we have this <laughs> we have this idea of secularism that like, this is what is valuable. Human, like, and not that we don't think human life is value, but, it, but it's kind of like, this is a scientific approach to the world is this virus, not this religious approach that makes a distinction between men and women. And yeah. so you dress yourself certain ways. That's that's a valueless sort of thing, this religious component. But the secular thing, here's what we do value. And so we've allowed ourselves as Christians even to be kind of submerged under this pluralistic story to some extent, this secular story. And so we find ourselves with this narrative of secularism up here, and then Christianity kind of fits. And we see that even with the idea of the separation of church and state to an extent of like, you guys keep it in the closet. Yeah. This is the narrative that we have to live. And so I, I think it's been a very successful campaign. I'd have to look at it a little bit more. Like, I don't know these books particularly. I say, yes, yeah. this was their goal. Um, but it was, if it wasn't, it was at least a very successful goal uh, to get there. So. Yeah. What, so what did you think about this? Uh, he's kind of... He calls these books just simply false history. You're, you're rewriting history. And it's like, if you actually, if you don't believe in God or that you're going to have to give an account, why wouldn't you change the history books, mm -hmm. right? If, if there's no objective truth and everything is about power or control, then of course you're going to try to change the story. Um, to suit your purposes. And I think that's part of what makes it so difficult. Like right uh, just yesterday, there were these you know riots or burning in, in Minneapolis. And you're like, okay, how do I really know what's going on? Mm -hmm. Because there's also, we could hypothesize a bunch of different ways to account for you know a video of that happening or people you know, like there's all kinds of reasons and some I might say, oh, that's totally legit and virtuous. Okay, I, I could sympathize with them. And then, but you have people who none of us have all the information mm -hmm. um, and, and it's just instantly this political battle over, you know, you don't actually value 
black lives uh-huh. or cops or and, yeah and it's just funny seeing all the different places people are landing on this yeah and it's funny to look at my twitter feed this morning i wake up i'm looking at it and uh, one thread is this is what years of oppression and anger builds up in people then the other thread these are all poli- undercover cops provoking the riots i mean well, what, yeah. what it is is, is it, it a false flag <laughs> is, it, is it real yeah. Like, yeah so so which one is it and and so even when it comes and, and i think that's even the difficulty we have um we're always selective in history you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i think th- even think of my family um where you know i'm the youngest of five kids and obviously we all of our kids had different experiences knowing my parents at different ages and stuff like that being raised by them but like three of us can sit down and give a very similar interpretation to the childhood and our lives under our parents and the other two sit down and tell a different story and you know and you're sitting there going like we sound like we were raising i'm somehow like what home were you raised in you know yeah. what I mean? so so there is that subjective component to our understanding of our explanation of all this stuff that's going around so even when we're looking at historical components um and trying to weigh through, yeah, what's going on with uh, Galileo, what's going on with Copernicus. And even one of the things I thought was fascinating in this chapter and very helpful was how the church was kind of being limited by Aristotle and their understanding. Yeah. Like it, it was Aristotle's <laughs> physics that gave us this, or our view of nature that gave us this understanding. And we have to, th- this is why we have to be limited. Aristotle kind of gave us the idea that the uh, earth is the center of the universe type of thing. And so we have, we have to fit it. And so there was a science of the day that they had. It wasn't like they were yeah. anti reason and anti-enlightenment per se but they had their method that this is dictating the facts and so they had theirs back then we now have ours and and so yeah kind of tying into this idea of secular philosophy is i do think that they want to get there because and and we see it even with you know uh up in minnesota right now you're gonna have the marxist is gonna be a little bit more traditional it's an economic riot then you're gonna have some racial people saying it's well it's a racial riot. you know what i mean so so even in that we have our theory of what's going on in the world and then we kind of interpret all the facts through that through that lens and and that's just the reality of uh of what we have to deal with so yeah i think it's fascinating uh, now that we're you know about to have our our first kid and i have to think about vaccines you know (laughs) things that i'm like i don't you know don't don't know about it and um i i I was having a conversation with my i think one of my sisters about it there's like they don't really know what they thought about it, and I'm like, yeah, I've I've read some stuff on it, but what I do know is that I don't trust these people who are mandating certain things, and I think you can look at the Minneapolis and what you just described. We we could live through the exact same experience, but give two very different accountings for it for what's right and wrong, and it's like. I don't know, are there fetal baby parts in the vaccine? Like, mm-hmm. if these people think abortion is okay, why would I trust their moral compass when it comes to injecting something else that's going to, you know, supposedly save life? And, and it's like, it's kind of a, it puts you in a hard position mm-hmm. to, to know, okay, they're not actually, uh, there isn't any neutrality yeah. when it comes to actually doing science. You, you can say the method is, you know, double blind tests or, you know, it's one thing to say this is our ideal as scientists to to adopt this method, but in reality, it's impossible, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're going to, you can look at the fossils or whatever, and you're going to say your your, uh, historical presuppositions or your theology is going to affect whether this is a few thousand years old or millions of years and somehow there's still, you know, muscle tissue in the dinosaur bone or yeah. something like that. And, and, and a lot of what you're just saying ties in with what Mitch was saying earlier. Like much of our knowledge is based on trust. Yeah. And so, and if you're under a general 
you know, suspicion of Bill Gates, who might, who might be coming up with a yeah. virus, then you're going to be like, huh, you know what I mean? And, and so, and, and also if you, if you take the narrative that uh, even, you know, say you're a black man in Minneapolis and the idea is a white supremacy and people want to keep you down, why would you trust what a governor is going to say to you or a mayor is going to say to you? Because everything built into that is a suspicion of, I can't trust them. So, and, and I kind of had that natural suspicion of those who like, oh yeah, you must do this, you must do this. Like, why do you guys want to control all this? Mm-hmm. So my natural disposition is one of suspicion and and the hard part is I can't verify I'll never be able to verify whether vaccines are legit or not. I, yeah. I'm just gonna have to. I could read an argument and just be like, okay, the numbers seem to be this or not this. Yeah. Um, and then from there, you you just got you, it. It boils down to who are you going to trust, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the yeah the difficulty of of these things. So. Yeah, I think I was reading. I think it was Rush Dooney that I was reading, maybe in his Systematics or something recently, where he talks about the relationship. Uh, I think this was talking about Marxism or kind of the revolutionary spirit. He says they have this love hate relationship with power because they want to. It's they're like in one sense anarchist and totalitarian at the same time. Fascinating. And and he and he goes and shows and you and you realize like, yeah, do these people hate authority? Do they want to change who's in authority? And it's always this power grab where, where they're anarchists anytime that they're under authority they don't like, let's call for revolution. Uh-huh. And then you say, well what do you want to replace it with? They want to replace it with a totalitarian <laughs> regime yeah. that imposes strictly what they say and you realize okay here's the new boss just like the old boss kind yeah of thing. And, and, and you know you think of you know in the context of minneapolis now we kind of like right now in our country we kind of have this tyranny everybody stay home and then we have this anarchy you know what i mean and it's also funny to see looters and rioters like social distancing mass <laughs> you know what i mean it's just a mask like, with <laughs> under the you got a mask, under <laughs> the mask. Yeah, yeah. and so so you and I, I think practically we're seeing uh very much that outworking we have uh we have anarchy and we have kind of a tyranny going on at the same time stay in your home people are burning burning stuff down so yeah yeah good anything else from chapter 11 before we look at 12 and and 13 um i I think one of the good things here uh let me i think it was this chapter let me i'm working off my phone now not my book there was a he had a quote from augustine i believe in here that i think was um uh, very helpful but um here we go so this is uh, under the section uh, don't be too hasty yeah this is page 107 if you have the, the actual book and and here and and i think this is and one of the things i actually really really like about mitch's book is um i mean he's not obsessed with certainty so like he and even this chapter if you're being honest with it you can be like you know who would i have been staying there in Galileo's shoes when the orthodoxy of the day, here's the science of the day, is yeah. nope, we have a, a heliocentric universe or a, a geocentric universe, blah, blah, blah. Like, what do you, um, where would I be standing? And then even how they bring up the Joshua uh, story, the Joshua and, the, and the, the sun standing still. So if the text tells you to sun stand still and you're taking it literally, what does it mean that sun stands still? You ass- mm-hmm. you know you assume that like yeah we're the ones uh, uh, or the sun's the ones moving we're standing still the sun's actually moving so if I say the sun stood still the operating assumption is that is what's moving and so when you uh, so I think this section is really helpful in just kind of working through your hermeneutic and the dance totally. that you have to do because they talk about there being two um, two books the, the the natural world and the Bible and my general disposition is. Once I'm persuaded the text teaches something, I'm open to a reorienting of my understanding of the text, but that takes my supremacy over what I believe I'm understanding in the natural world. Yeah. Um, and so to steal something, and, and even just, it made me think of James 3, where it's like, not many should presume to be teachers for the judge more strictly. But here's Galileo believe that Augustine was right. And I don't know if Galileo actually quoted this, but this is at least Mitch's take. Galileo believed that Augustine was right when the ancient saint said, 
The distressing thing is not so much that an erring man, the believer, should be laughed at, but that our authors of Scripture should be thought by outsiders to believe such things and should be criticized and rejected as ignorant to the great detriment of those whose salvation we care about. For how can they believe our books in regard to the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven when they catch a Christian committing an error about something they know very well, when they declare false his opinion taken from those books, and when they find, uh, and when they find these full of fallacies in regard to the things they have already been able to observe or to establish by unquestionable argument? And so just that quote to me was one of those things like, even I think, you know, I'm open air preaching and I generally, and it was kind of funny, uh, I was actually talking to a professor um, who teaches anthropology uh, in Southern California and uh, and I don't spend too much time on evolution because I, I there's just too many facts involved that I, I simply can't know the field. Yeah. So I kind of juke and jive, to be honest, when that issue comes up and kind of deal more with the metaphysical issues because I'm pulling them off the ground that they're familiar with, moving them onto my ground and something I feel more discuss comfortable discussing. And we uh, had dinner one night uh, or yeah, I met up for drinks one night after I preached in uh, Southern California, and we're and he's kind of like, oh yeah, because yeah, I mentioned the it's frustrating to be out there and hearing people quote the Bible, and you're like, you just haven't studied the text, and he's like, yeah, I kind of noticed you don't spend too much time on evolution. I was like, yeah, because I don't know it, you know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah. I, I'm I don't know it like I know my Bible, and so so even this element, uh, what Augustine's getting at here is. Um, when we speak, we want to know what we're speaking about so that if we're, say we are speaking about history and we just, you know, we, we hear one thing so we just run with it. You know, we watch Fox News, so we're quoting that and people who really know what's going on, they're like, that's an insane understanding of what's going on and it kind of discredits us as Bible believers. Um, and, and so what we want to do is remain faithful and have a proper understanding. Speak, you know, be slow to speak, quick to listen, I think is just a good application of this section. But I actually really enjoyed, if you get a chance, read that whole section and kind of marinate in the idea of like, even just a hermeneutic of how we understand the two books and how they're interacting. And even as he makes the case that the debate going on with Galileo was uh, not in of itself a religious one, but their understanding of the book of nature. And so there was an orthodoxy of the day and Galileo was on the outside. So in our context, theoretically, it could be the guy who is a creationist would be the heretic of the day in the, in the academy. And so if you ever saw that movie where they're chasing out the intelligent design professors. I can't remember the name of band or something like that. I can't remember the name of the movie. Um, but it'd be along those lines. Like they're, they're speaking a heretical view uh, given orthodoxy on a college campus. So they're asked to move out in a similar fashion. That was Galileo of his day a little bit. And then you throw in some social dynamics with a Pope and you got yeah. a pretty good story. So Yeah, I think the maybe non, this is probably a too simplistic, but the non-revisionist history, I think Stokes would say, is it wasn't science versus religion. It was science versus science and Christians versus Christians mm -hmm. trying to figure out, okay, if we are going to change the paradigm, which this is not an insignificant paradigm shift, uh, we better know what we're doing. And it seems like they ha they, they knew that because that, that is a big deal. If, if suddenly we did uh, come to like some strong evidence that the earth was uh, a certain age and we were all say young earthers or old earthers whichever way you would go I mean you want to make sure that you're not throwing out scripture mm -hmm. to fit with your your new scientific facts that they can harmonize it and the question really was well how do we harmonize it and the other thing I, th I think that's interesting is uh, the devil did he, give, did he give us an answer how do we harmonize? Because I don't remember. I don't remember walking away with feeling like, oh, that's how we. Okay. Uh, not yet. Okay. Not in this chapter. Okay. I think he starts getting to it later okay. on, but uh, okay. we'll we'll see. Um, the other, the other kind of thing this reminded me of is so the devil his he, he can only corrupt God's good 
things. And, you know, he creates cults and, you know, Christian spinoffs, heresy, false teachers. And he's always attacking God's word. And we, we, we probably have to say that science, the, this whole science dial versus religion dialectic, has probably been one of the most successful campaigns against the truth and confidence people have in God's word. And I think you can know that when you pick up all these commentaries mm -hmm. that were produced in, I don't know, the, you know, eight, uh, 1900 to 2000, I don't know when, when uh -huh. it kind of cut off, and the whole kind of fundamentalist controversy about inerrancy and, and like you said, hermeneutic. How do we take the Bible literally? Is Genesis figurative? Mm -hmm. uh, I think science just opened this box of questions and now you read the commentaries and they're trying to argue for the miracles in the gospels how those could actually be you know some natural of event or um this this idea that the supernatural isn't actually a thing mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's interesting seeing that was a battle that was fought seems like we're on the other end of it but You'll still, if you tweet something, or you'll still have students come up to you and say, you know, science is disproving your God. And yeah. That's what Stokes is getting at. Yeah, and, and uh, again, going back to, I've kind of reiterated this every week, but uh, Stokes is dealing with a particular student, and it is a particular kind of still modernistic-y, science is the way, they're not totally postmodern, you know what I mean? It might be socially postmodern, but they still think the sciences give us real knowledge of the world, and I think that's uh, kind of who this uh, book is predominantly uh, aim for even you mentioning you know, not getting too tangential, but the uh, but yeah, it, it's frustrating to read even conservative commentaries um, because you're just not interacting with the text well. You know what I mean? Because they want to show that it's history. They want to show all these things other than just what the story God is giving us. You know, yeah. and, and what's going on here, and and so they're hearing, they're failing to hear. Like what I've realized more and more is that. Hearing the Bible is almost much more akin to like listening to a comedy routine. Like, not that it's not history, not that it's not real, but but if you listen to a comedian, there's a cadence over his set, and that he'll recall previous jokes and stuff like that. And all, all the stories he could be telling are 100% absolutely really happen. They're really true, but the way they're structured is in a way not in a strict scientific uh, like beaker. Yeah. Wade sort of way, but he's telling all these stories true, but he's using certain words and certain ideas to recall his early material. Then at the end of his set, it's like he does the big recall, and I was like, ah, oh, he's like, good night, everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Walks off stage, and I was like, what a great set. And and so the Bible's much more in some ways that. It's still history, it's still these things, but it's not the enlightenment concept of science. And so when we read the Bible in that way, and that's the hard part, because the modernist kid, the, 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 the Christian kid, who's been influenced by modernism, hears me saying that, he's like, wait, so, so, so these things didn't happen? They're just stories? And, yeah. and, and, and even that idea shows how the, the, the success of secularism, so those people arguing for secularism, that just shows the success of that methodology mm -hmm. that they've set all the parameters and like the minute you break out of that, um, they're like, oh no, am I losing my Christianity? Because my Christianity is more modernist than it is Christianity in a way. Yeah. And, um, but one of the things also encouraging in that, uh, in our context with more liberal people is even Galileo made a comment like I believe every word in the Bible what it teaches is true and you have these people want to say oh well inerrancy that's a modernist concept no there I mean you could argue that modernity was beginning back then yeah. um, but the, the the reality of it is the idea that people 500 years ago were saying no the Bible's true and all that it teaches um, 
we, I, I felt like at least when I was in seminary, I'd read some liberals. They wanted to like take these shots, and and even sometimes, even someone I respect, like an NT right, will take a shot. Like, oh, you Americans with your yeah, come on, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, that's uh, some of the stuff you bump into yeah. studying this. Started over there. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. So, uh, chapter twelve is called the Lazy God, and this gets into the whole God of the Gaps argument. And uh, there's one quote that I thought was really key, and he says, uh, "This is Stokes talking." He says. All hypotheses are explanations, but not all explanations are hypotheses. Hypotheses are inferred explanations, not observed explanations. Uh, Keith, what did you make of this chapter and, and maybe even that quote dealing with how you give an account, what is an explanation versus what is a theory? What, what's just something that people are hypothesizing? Yeah, uh, kind of back up uh, for a split second on even just the nature of, uh, I, I'm not I'm sure if I'm going to pronounce this name right, Laplace, um, <laughs> where, so, you know, the, the, you kind of have the discussion, there's no, wh where does God fit in your theory? Supposedly Napoleon's having this conversation with Laplace, and after Laplace lays out his theory, um, uh, Napoleon asks him, where's God at in your theory? And he's like, oh, I have no need for him. Mm -hmm. And and then you get this idea, this concept of the God of the gaps, which is kind of a prominent thing. Like if you argue against something in science, you're like, oh, you're just arguing for the God of the gaps. And so you'll hear that. But one thing that was kind of interesting is, is in a very explicit way, um, again, I don't know enough of the science. I think it was Newton. Newton was making an argument and he wasn't able to get his calculation just right. And then he's just like, oh, well, God does that. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And, so, so, and so he just kind of threw God into the equation to be like, oh, I can't explain this. Therefore, God does it. And so that's where, well, I don't need God anymore. So, so if, if I'm explaining you know my past interference again uh based on a demon and then we go oh no it was this and then uh and someone else explains it and all through uh like naturalistic explanations and they're like oh well, what happened to the demon in that well i no longer need that and so the the idea of the god of the gaps well isn't of itself a metaphysical claim that there is no god holding the universe together and that sort of stuff but as newton studied uh, the planets, stuff like that, and he had this n nudge that had to happen once every however long it was. Uh, but Laplace comes along and says, I have no need for, for God for that. And that's been extrapolated out to be this universal thing that uh, obviously we don't need God for anything because he ultimately will have a naturalistic explanation for all things. And so I, I kind of liked getting a little more his history on that because uh, you know some, some aspects of the, the history of science I'm ignorant in, and that would uh, that'd be an area where it was good to kind of have a little bit more of a context for it. Yeah, it's kind of funny that the whole God of the gaps pejorative is fairly effective in just a street-level debate if, if they pull that on you. And sometimes you'll see Christians making the, this mistake, and you're like, oh, man, they're about to get body slammed with <laughs> this God of the gaps. It's like you don't want to go down that road. And I, was, I forget if it's in maybe both uh, Romans 11 and also in Colossians or in Hebrews. I think it's all three of those places where it's like, you know, for from him to him and through him are all things. And in some ways, you need to be a reformed Christian who believes in sovereignty, like mm -hmm. not that God just created the world or set it in motion, but that he's upholding foreordained everything. Like you can't get away from him. This is where like you're, you're just proper doctrine of God mm -hmm. is immensity, immensity, transcendence, all that would prevent you from going down this this road where, uh, you know, if you're just a scientist and you're a deist, say, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, well, God's kind of convenient for you because when you can't get your equation to, you know, reconcile, you uh -huh. can just kind of, okay. You he know, occasionally this, intervenes. Yeah. He does a miracle here and there, but, but he's really distant. And I, I think that's what he does a good job laying out is, 
kind of kind of like oftentimes we are deists. We don't believe that like Colossians one is at one sixteen where he holds all yeah. things together. So right now, even this podcast, while we're doing this, <laughs> Jesus holding us together. You know yeah. what I mean? Amidst Minneapolis burning, he's holding it all together. And yeah. so when your view of providence is somewhat deistic, and and that kind of shows the influence, and many Christians are, it shows the influence of naturalism on our philosophy or on our thinking. So we just think that the world churns forth every day the way it is. It's almost like God wound it up and he's letting it go. But no, he's the one who governs the heavens and earth day in, day out. And that's where it becomes so helpful is that these quote-unquote miraculous, or I can't remember Mitch's language, but it was something like he's, uh, he, you know, it, it, he's basically not doing what he normally does. And so yeah. when there's a miracle or a, a sign of power, um, here's his normal providence, and then he's interjecting in this way. And, and uh, interjection is not the right word because that's that shows that he's not normally there, then he interjects. And so if you think of kids playing and the parent occasionally showing up to intervene and running off into the distance, and um, that's almost like a form of deism. They're, they they kind of got things going with the kids, and then they're distant every now and then they'll hop in, they'll you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, opposed to biblical providence is, I mean, he's really holding all, all of it together. So. Yeah. I was just listening to Jim Jordan this week, and he has this really funny and fascinating talk about food and the body. And so, you think what's more natural than you got to put food and water into your body to to live, to survive? And he said, you know, think think about the the garden. You know, the uh, you have to kill stuff. You eat we like we eat dead stuff. You you mm-hmm. kill the tomato. Uh, you kill the animal. Like they're you know, metaphorically speaking, however we would talk about them, even vegetables, dead. Mm -hmm. And if you think, how can a dead thing give you life? Mm -hmm. And you're like, that that X doesn't equal Y. You know, that doesn't make sense. And what he says is God is the one who makes it work. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's something... He's teaching you something. There's got to be some death in order for, for life to happen. But how is it that we eat food... And we and we somehow keep going another day, mm-hmm. or that we go to sleep, and if we don't sleep, you'll you'll die. <laughs> you'll eventually, you yeah. Know? And, and there's all these things that God, where Paul says in First Corinthians 15, you you fools, do you not know that what goes into the ground dies and comes back? Basically, arguing for the resurrection, not from Scripture, but based on natural law. Mm-hmm. Like we're here in the Palouse. You see the wheat, you see it, you see it grow, you see it get harvested, and Paul could say, "You fool, go look at the Palouse. The resurrection is is right there." And and Jim Jordan's point was, naturalists want to you know look at how exactly the food brings nutrients to you and keeps you going, and we say, "Okay, yeah, that that's fine." But God's the one that makes any of that work down to your what you just ate for, for breakfast yeah, this morning. Yeah, and giving us a symbolism of a seed going in the ground, dying, and then springing forth to life. And I always, you know, for the past year, probably been thinking a lot of Psalm 1. And, yeah, you just you look at the world, you see a tree. Like, every now and then driving around here, you'll have the random tree near a water source. It'll just be this big flowing tree. And you're just like, in Psalm 1, who, you want to be like a tree planted by streams of living water. And when you think about that, like, and that's even the approach when you begin to look at the world. You, when you see planting and everything else, that's even what you think of, you know, husband planting a seed into his wife and life comes out of it and so you're constantly getting life out of seeds and god sent it up not in a strict scientific way of what a seed is and now that's a helpful way of when you when you need to be a farmer and stuff like that but part of being the farmer is understanding the analogy or the symbolism of the world that's going on around you and yahweh has given us all of that to study the world yep well let's uh wrap up with chapter 13 here and this is where he actually talks about methodological uh, naturalism philosophical naturalism 
uh, scientific provincialism. There's all sorts of uh, jargon that he uses here. Um, I'm looking at the four-year arsenal section, which is kind of this good summary he gives at the end. Uh, Keith, is there anything you want to hit or emphasize from chapter 13? Uh, well, I, I guess I, I just, uh, for some reason, I like the line. Richard Dawkins, for example, so basically looking at the world around us, it does seem like uh, like fine-tuned for us, you know what I mean? And even Richard Dawkins looks at the universe and says, he calls it like uh, the respective the Goldilocks zone. And yeah. so it's just right. So even here, you have Richard Dawkins, who's kind of look at the world, uh, concedes that the parameters such as these are in their respective Goldilocks zone. And so um, you, you do, you have to, uh, and I think if you're being honest, you have to look at the world even as Joe Atheist and and it has some appearance of design. And the fact that we have life here and everything else um, and everything is set just right for us, I, I think is uh, kind of an important idea. Yeah, I just grabbed my, uh, I'm reading Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God, and this is his kind of introductory systematic theology for laymen. And if you guys don't own this, it just came out, I highly recommend you get it. And his is just great section on general revelation and gets into the kind of basic arguments for God. So there's the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, moral argument, and so forth. Um, Keith, I have always found the fine-tuning argument so persuasive, um, maybe not to bring me to a Trinitarian God per se, but to just the absolute impossibility of atheism, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and I was just curious, have you ever used the fine-tuning argument as an argument with someone to, to prove God's existence, or is it pretty much always just a confirmation to strengthen faith? Yeah, I think it, you know, I think it's a mixed bag. I think it is generally a confirmation to faith to most Christians, but there are people uh, and I feel like a maybe a little bit more recently, there are, uh, and so to answer your question, no, I have not, cannot recall a conversation where I've been uh, with a kind of a fine tuning component. And then someone was like, yeah, that makes total sense. There have been strands of that. Like I, uh, I, I taught, there was a school that I, when I'd go through there, the philosophy professor would let me come. And uh, I, I may have, I was just recently, my conversations all collapsed, but so she let me come and talk about, uh, to her class on origins, yeah. uh, philosophical origins. And I was coming like the third week of schools early in the semester, it was a Northern school. So I got there early. And what was funny is they're working through the semester from uh, the least likely uh, scenario for the beginning of the cosmos to the most likely. And I was coming in like on the third week and she was like, oh, you're coming in at the perfect time. Uh, and so, so our philosophy of being gracious. You being there was just a slap. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and, and what was funny is the week after me, they were teaching about aliens depositing us. So, so my, that, that was the more plausible. Yeah, that was the more plausible was the idea that aliens uh, pl uh, planted us here. But um, what school What school is this? It was in Montana. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the good thing, but the good thing about that was laying out so what I sought to do with them was was kind of intertwining with this and some strand of presuppositionalism, but like what you want to do with your theory of origins is you want to account, you want to ultimately account for everything. What's your, your theory of origins is going to intertwine with your ethics, it's going to intertwine with how you know the world, it's going to intertwine with, you know, everything that's going on here. And so in a sense that there was a, you know, in a presuppositional, you're, I was trying to fine tune everything. Like what, what brings you guys here now thinking about this stuff that your brain is now looking at the world around you and now you're thinking about your origins mm -hmm. and is it coherent with how you're understanding your origins? So if you just have purely naturalistic understandings at the beginning of the cosmos and everything you want is naturalism, does that explain your current place of thinking? And I felt like they were kind of like, no, you know what I mean? I was like, so, so, but what, what would be a more reasonable explanation of 
where we are and even the way that you think about things, kind of going back to the cognitive faculties that uh, they talk about properly functioning yeah. cognitive faculties. Um, and in having that discussion, there was some people who came up to me afterwards and like they wanted to talk more. And so, the, so it wasn't a full tilt like uh, intelligent design, fine tuning. Because I, I simply, again, I don't know enough about physics and yeah. biology to say, look at, and if this was one quarter of a hair a second, you know what I mean, we'd all be dead or we'd all be snowing off the die. So I don't know enough about that. But I can think about what it means to be a human being and the way I think about the world. Mm -hmm. And does naturalism account for that? Does atheism account for that? And I would just say the answer is no. And so without using an explicit fine-tuning uh, argument, I would say that a lot of students wanted to come talk to me about uh, that sort of thing, because it is. Like, and when you've never heard it, I don't even think for Joe and Believer, because Romans 1's true, they're kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so so it resonates with them. And so even as you guys do evangelism and do some apologetics, I mean, without being like kitsch, like, I mean, I even remember like preaching with my friend Tom, Tom Short, uh, a long time ago, and like, I remember thinking, like, it's such a simple argument, but, like, when they'd say, Tom, I mean, give me a break. Why would you believe in God? He's like, I don't know. Same reason I believe in an architect. Just point to a building. He's like, same reason. And, and you kind of see the people kind of stop. You yeah. know what I mean? Okay, yeah, it it just seems, seems so commonsensical in a way. Yeah. And I realized when you start to get more philosophical, oh, the problems with the cosmological argument. But when you're talking to average Joe on the street, the cosmological argument makes sense. A fine-tuning argument makes sense. You know what I mean? Like with your Dawkins and your hardened atheists who are entrenched, or even these guys who are aiming for secularism, mm -hmm. you know, the, you, you don't cast pearls before swine. But there are there are plenty of people on the streets where, you know, you can be publicly preaching, you look at a building, like, same reason I believe in architect. And like, you can just see their face, like, yeah, that makes sense. You know I mean? Then you always have the kids like, that's not so. But, uh, you know, in, in very common parlance sort of ways, I think these things are you know, make sense to people. Um, and if we can articulate them in a somewhat gracious, kind way, yeah. I think uh, they're a good thing to articulate. Yeah. Some of the things that I've noticed just in our conversation is, yeah, we all don't have the time or energy or expertise to be able to argue about everything, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just like we were using the Minneapolis example. It's like, I, I really like that you said, you know, I don't know a ton about evolution, so I, I just try not to talk a bunch about it. But you know that it's false and you and you would never be persuaded by it despite but just knowing like that's not my expertise that's not my battleground and and i think this is where if you're like a kind of a hardcore uh, vantillian or a presuppositionalist it's like okay that, that's great to have your foundation solid but it in terms of what is persuasive it's really helpful sometimes to have all these other arguments mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, I, I couldn't give you all the facts of the fine-tuning argument. Uh, I think maybe William Lane Craig or some of these other evidentialists, like I'm grateful for them mm -hmm. because they do that work. And I may find a time where that is really just a persuasive thing once, once I've kind of chipped away presuppositionally on why it's incoherent, their worldview. I'd say, well, over here, this is... This is how we make sense of the cosmos, and it's very elegant. Mm -hmm. Like there's a certain harmony to belief in God, where it it does all things cohere in Christ. And if you have Christ, it's really beautiful to see all these relationships uh, that suddenly connect. Yeah, and kind of even slightly tangential, but I think of uh, earlier in the semester, I was in Arizona preaching, and a kid was taking a religious studies class, and um, your average religious studies class on a university campus, I believe they're going to accept uh, seven Pauline letters as being authentic okay. and the rest not. And, <laughs> I want to know who did this study. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so uh, he brings that up. You know, I don't know, uh, you know, the, in my class we learn, and so he, and he wasn't a believer, 
Um, and one of the things I kind of laid out for him, and part of the rationale behind it is like, so for example, I got busted in high school for plagiarism because the teacher was like, this isn't your writing. You know, I'm familiar with your writings. And so what they want to say is, here's Paul's writings. Yeah. Here he is here, here he is here. And these are not the same <laughs> guy writing a, a text. And so you can kind of do a an analysis of language and stuff like that. But if you take somebody, especially if they're intelligent, um, like Paul, unlike me in high school, um, and uh, and so so you can take someone's writing over time and even if you take who I was at the beginning of college to the end of college my writing radically shifted you take who I was in high school and so and even if you take me now from college it's going to be radically different and so when the kids started asking me questions about that I was like I understand their point and you know they go through the use of Paul's language and stuff like that but if you think about the way you use language or even the evolution of language in our own culture and if you're going to other places how you're talking it's not unreasonable that Paul would be using different language to different people especially if you're a Greek a Jew you know what I mean and and you have a breadth of knowledge and you're well learned you can do a lot to communicate to a lot of different people and so like you know that's kind of a commonsensical explanation to why the same guy Paul like someone wants to look at two letters and be like none of this language is the same it can't be the same person and the writing style is different um, but if you take someone over a period of 20 years writing books and stuff yeah. like that you're gonna see those differences and so that's where even like kind of in, a, in, in some ways a common sense like if you just think through that issue you don't need tons of knowledge to be like, okay, what is a reasonable explanation, going back to some of the you know, the theory and explanation, what's a reasonable explanation that a lot of Paul's language here is totally different? You know what I mean? It's fairly reasonable that, well, he's writing to two different groups of people. Um, he's writing 20 years later. There's a lot of reasonable explanations for why these things are different. And so that's a, you know, kind of tied in, not, not totally to a fine-tuning argument, but I was thinking of that in the context of like, the kid was kind of like, all right, that's totally reasonable. You know what I mean? And I, he didn't become a believer or anything like that, but he went yeah. from like, I mean, you got, I don't I can't recall how many books Paul wrote, but you have seven, so let's say it's eight, 17 or something, 18, whatever it is, and be like, you know, two thirds of them aren't even written by Paul. You know what I mean? He's like, and so how, why, how can I believe your book? And then you, you kind of lay that out and he's like, okay, that's, that's actually reasonable. And he said, he was like, okay, that's reasonable. And then he asked one more, I wish I remember what the other question was, then we were able to move on. So, so it's helpful to have those things, a, a little bit of an evidentialist-y sort of thing that just kind of lays out, here's, even with what you're doing here, here's why it's very reasonable. So. Yeah, totally. Well, Keith, thanks for joining us. Uh, how much longer are you going to be in Moscow for? Do, is there any way to even know? Uh, there's no way to know. The wind blows where it wills. Uh, <laughs> and so um, and so it is the one born of the Spirit, uh, maybe permanently. Um, so yeah, honestly, if you think of prayer, I, I probably, no, I'll just say uh, maybe permanently. Uh, I have some, I do need to run around a little bit uh, over the summer and get to some places and see some people uh, but um, I'll definitely be here through uh, in August for Grace Agenda and some other things so Lord willing maybe it becomes my home uh, yeah. but for the time being uh, yeah that, I, so I'll, I'll say it might, it might be my home so if you think about it pray that I'd maybe get a home here so. yeah and if people want to reach you or if they want to support you how can they do that uh, you can go to campuspreacher.com and there's a tab there that says uh, support you can give via PayPal or a check um, you can also sign up for a newsletter. I barely send those out. I should probably send them out more often than I should. And then you can go to Campus Evangel on Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram. And I hope to maybe be doing a study through Mark on Instagram TV. So maybe join up and subscribe to that. And then Facebook Keith Thero. Cool. And one last plug on June 1st, uh, our church and thousands of other people around the world are starting a Bible reading challenge called Same Page Summer. And we are going to be reading through the New Testament uh, in June, July, and August. The whole New Testament's about, you know, you'll read probably like five days a week. 
and it's pretty manageable pace. And um, if you're wondering why there hasn't been as much consistent content on the podcast, it's because I am working on creating content for this. <laughs> and uh, I think we're actually gonna pull Keith probably into a few of those. So be looking for that and join us. Uh, go to, I think, uh, biblereading.christkirk.com if you wanna find the reading plan. All right, till next time, peace. peace.